mysteries, hoaxes, folklore, conspiracy, and pseudo-history. Topics sometimes avoided by historians who don't want to normalize nonsense or draw attention to the blind spots in our knowledge of the past. But these are some of our most intriguing tales. The Lost Colony of Roanoke, The Man in the Iron Mask, The Princes in the Tower, The Battle of Los Angeles, The Turin Shroud. Stories like these fraught with ambiguities and falsehoods and suggesting alternate views of history, not only entertain, but also teach us to view the past and the present with a critical eye. Join me, Nathaniel Lloyd, as I delve into these stories on my podcast, Historical Blindness, and shine a light in the darker corners of the past. New episodes every other Tuesday, available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and most podcast apps. Hello, and welcome to Pontifax. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree, ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And this is episode 82, Pope Leo II. Ooh. Someone tried to follow that. Uh, that great Leo? Yeah, someone tried to follow that up. Mm. Yeah, there's also going to be people who try to follow up that great Gregory. And we'll, we'll see. We'll see if they match up to their original greatness. Spoiler. No. <laughs> <laughs> but first off, it has been a long time. This is the first time we are recording in almost two months, thanks to all of the madness of quarantine. So this episode's going to have a lot of catch-up bits in it that you might have gotten otherwise if we were recording more often. Deal with it. <laughs> I don't know. It is what it is. And so the first thing before we get into Leo 2 is that we're going to go all the way back to when we were talking about Celtic tonsures. You remember the donuts and the headbands? Yeah, in the yeah, in the headband. Yeah, I remember all of that. It was a fun Twitter ride. Well, the fun Twitter ride went a little bit further and we never got to talk about it, so we're going to talk about it now. So, we got a message from Roland Romhilt on Twitter who said, "I remembered something I read on this when I was a teenager." So in this book, Monasticism in the Occident, this evangelist Matthew from the Book of Doro is depicted. On the look of the Irish, it writes, and I'm going to read you the description. Instead of the tonsure of St. Peter, the donut, the Irish used to have the so-called tonsure of St. Jacob or St. John. Also, they apparently colored their eyebrows or eye rims with some red pigment and wore capsules with relics around their neck and another box containing sacred hosts, and they carried up to five self-written books on their journeys. So he sent us a source picture that you're going to love, and this is from Das Mönchum in Abenland by Peter Howell, 3rd edition from 2007. So if you want a full look at what those Irish monks would have looked like, here you are, Fry. <laughs> That's a really cute... Uh, okay. So, so like you were describing it, and then the red, red rimmed eyes, and that's usually what they do when like someone's like a cultist who's been drinking blood or like half vampire, you know, like, yep. ooh, I'm an undead sort of human, you know? 
demonic. Anything demonic. <laughs> yeah, demonic. That's so so that was a real choice for them. I absolutely love it. This is such a look. This man is wearing a red and yellow checkered cloak from literally the top of his neck all the way down to his shin bones. He is just a bell shape. He's got a bell shape of the Celtic tonsure. His feet are both going sideways. He looks very perplexed in his face. I will post this on our social media. It's the headband, but with like the 90s butt crack look in the middle. It is all of those things and more. And I love it. And I want this as like a bookmark or something. So possibly a demon. That was a choice they made. (laughs) This is a choice that they made. And so now we know exactly what it would have looked like. And I want to give a huge thanks to Roland for sending that out to us. Amazing. We'll post it in the show notes. We'll post it on Twitter. Check it out. It's amazing. So that's our first sort of catch up bit of stuff. And now we can actually get into Pope Leo II. And we're starting off pretty strong because we actually have a full name for him. So he was either born as Leo Menaeus or Leo Menelius, and he was born in Sicily, and his father's name was Paulus. And he was likely born in about the year 611. Now, having been born in Sicily, it's likely that the reason that Leo ends up in Rome was the same reason that we've had other disruptions in the church, which is, namely, the Muslim Caliphate. They had launched raids into Sicily by 652, and although this didn't lead to, like, swift and thorough conquest the way it had in the Levant, it made the area dangerous and unstable, and many people, particularly Sicilian clergy, left to come to Rome. So if Leo was born in 611 and he left during those first raids, he might have been about 40 when he arrived in Rome. Now, whoever is responsible for writing this segment of the Liber Pontificalis really liked Pope Leo and spends a lot of extra time giving us the flavor of his personality, his skills, and his reputation. Well, when you have to follow the great, you have to, like... Zhuzh up the man? Yeah. (laughs) Oh, and he does. So I am going to quote directly for you because this is as close to like a priest crush on a pope that we've seen in quite a while. He says, He was a man of great eloquence, competently versed in Holy Scripture, proficient in Greek and Latin, and distinguished for his chanting and psalmody, which he interpreted elegantly and with the most sensitive and subtle touches. In speech, too, he was a man of education and refined in his choice of the lofty style. He gave encouragement to all good works and inspired a great flowering of knowledge among the people. He loved the poor and was concerned to look after the destitute not merely with dutiful attention, but through his own hard work and toil. This is some glowing praise. It really is. Like, ooh, his chanting was so nice. And ooh, ooh. Yeah, the the big thing that comes up a lot with him is that he is an eloquent speaker, but a very accomplished singer. He was also, of course, a competent cleric entrusted with elevated responsibility and a champion of the poor. So it's no surprise that he's held in quite high regard by the Roman clergy. 
and that he gets elevated to the status of cardinal on December 5th of 680 by Pope Agatho. And then a month later when Pope Agatho dies, Leo is swiftly and in majority elected to be the next pope. However, he wouldn't be consecrated as pope until August 17th of 682, over a year and a half from his actual election. Considering we're still within this Byzantine papacy period, this doesn't seem particularly out of sorts, right? We have had long extended sede vacantes when communications with Constantinople have been dicey. We've definitely had gaps longer than a year when the emperor and the pope have been in conflict. But this is a little bit strange because Constantine IV is still emperor. This is the same emperor who just held an ecumenical council with Pope Agatho and had even agreed to re-evaluate that clerical tax we mentioned last time. And because it's been so long, a reminder, this was a tax that any cleric ex expected to pay upon consecration, even including the Pope, who was essentially paying for the emperor's confirmation. But our emperor had just agreed to either alleviate or abolish the tax. So for all intents and purposes, we could assume that this confirmation was going to come quick and easy. We come to this question of what's the rub? Why is this taking so long? And it turns out that the tax that the emperor agreed to alleviate or abolish is the rub. Now, fortunately, it's not in a sort of negative way that this would seem. It's just that the actual negotiations were still ongoing since Agatho had died in the middle of the negotiations. So they were never got finished. And therefore, the consecration was held off until they came to an agreement between the soon-to-be pope and emperor, right? You don't want to get consecrated and have to pay a tax that you're then going to have the emperor agree to get rid of. And with correspondence going back and forth such a great distance to come to an agreement, it just, it just took a long time. So that's why it took so long for him to be consecrated. But an agreement was eventually reached, and so he was finally consecrated August 17th of 682 by Andrew the Bishop of Ostia, John of Portis, and Placentius of Velitre. Placentius. Placentius. I knew you'd love that one. Boy. That's why I included it. It's a nice little detail in the Liber Pontificalis to tell us who consecrated the Pope, but Placentius. <laughs> now, unfortunately for us, none of the primary sources indicate what the agreement was about the tax and whether it was reduced or abolished at this point. Either way, whether it's gone or it's significantly reduced, it's still a win for less interference in the papacy. And that is when I fell into a whole rabbit hole about papal taxation and the economy of the church. And no, we're not going to cover all of that here because it is dry and very complex. Now, when we're dealing with Leo's papacy, lately with our previous popes, we have been so focused on the religious controversy of monothelitism that the current status of the actual city of Rome hasn't been immediately relevant. So in order to properly contextualize Leo's papacy, we have to look at how Rome is actually doing. And it turns out that the Lombards are back, and they're super unstable, and some substantial raiding is happening outside of the walls of Rome, 
with a specific focus on churches and catacombs. That is never a great thing for the church. Are they going to have to move things? They are going to have to move things. I don't know why they continue to house relics beyond the walls anyways. It's a bit beyond me because this is not the first time that this has happened. But in order to protect the sites, Leo's first act as Pope was to undertake the transfer of the relics of any martyrs from outside of the walls, inside the walls, including St. Simplicius, Faustinus, and Beatrice. If you're renting a storage unit in a place that you know is going to get stolen, wouldn't you just not rent that storage unit anymore? I mean, that kind of takes away from the fact that these are holy sites built by the Apostolic Fathers and, you know, all of that nonsense. Because remember, it wasn't that long ago that Christianity, well, it is slightly a bit ago now, but 400 years ago, Christians were not allowed to be buried within the city walls, right? So you're right. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like they really should have moved them earlier. They absolutely should have moved them earlier. And there have been translation efforts in the past. So how these particular saints were not moved before this time, again, is beyond me, but they are now moved. And he dedicates two new churches, St. Paul the Apostle and St. Sebastian and George, and entombs all of those transferred relics in these new churches. So now all of the relics from outside the walls are in, or we got some secrets, secret relics we've forgotten about again. Oh, I'm sure there are going to be secret relics that we find out about later. There, there becomes, so, sort of through the, uh, the late Middle Ages into the early, early modern period, there is sort of a, a proliferation of, like, discoveries of saints. And we're going to get into the point where we have to start looking at which ones of these are legitimate, And which ones of these are probably, like, to sell relics? But it definitely is something that is going to come back into the forefront. But anyways, moving on from the translations of saints, because there's one other thing that he's quite well known for, and that is, we've already mentioned that Leo was musically gifted, and he put those gifts to use as the head of the church. So he is said to have composed new hymns that are still preserved today and still in use today. Although, when I did some digging, I could not find out the name of any or where they are in use. And I reached out to Andrew, who is our Catholic Church musician friend who supports us a lot on social media, and he didn't know either, and his buddy didn't know either. So it's going to be one of those... There's a potential that if you're dealing with an old hymn, it could be written by Pope Leo II. And in Rome, he also performed one set of holy ordinations for nine priests, three deacons, and 23 bishops. Gotta bolster those numbers. Yes, and don't worry, we're not done with him yet. I'm just including that in this section because it's the Rome-specific stuff. Because what we have to deal with next is the most important moment of Leo's papacy, And it's going to be the same as the most important moment of Agatho's papacy, which is participation in the Sixth Ecumenical Council of the Church, which we covered in our last non-anniversary episode, the Third Council of Constantinople. It's been so long, that's still happening. It's still happening in the sense because he didn't take an active role in the council since he wasn't consecrated 
until almost a year after the council's final session was concluded. But he is active involved in the fact that he is the pope who the canons of the council are sent to for confirmation. And confirm them he did, sending out decrees across the West, calling on all bishoprics to adhere to the official diophily Christology. And one of these decrees has been preserved in the letters sent to the Spanish king Ervig, as well as a synod that was held in Toledo in 684 to officially confirm their adherence. He also had the canons translated from Greek to Latin for better accessibility in the West, since, as we know, he had such a wonderful command of both languages. Can he sing in both? He probably could sing in both with his beautiful singing voice. And let's not forget that confirming the canons of this council also meant anathematizing one of his papal ancestors, Pope Honorius. This is where he's actually firmly and officially condemned and excommunicated as a heretic. I know. The besmirches every time. And on this front, as a besmircher, Pope Leo chose to address the anathematization directly, but also gently to kind of soften the blow. So he is the gentlest of the besmirchers. In his letter, Leo doesn't call Honorius an out-and-out heretic, but condemns him instead as one who, quote, who did not attempt to sanctify this apostolic church with the teaching of apostolic tradition, but by profane treachery permitted its purity to be polluted. So basically, he was saying Honorius wasn't on his guard as a hard line against this. So he's not saying, screw that pope, he's a heretic. He's being slightly more gentle about it. He's still besmirching our boy. He is still besmirching our boy. And he would have to score extremely well to score higher than Pope Honorius, who somehow is in third place. So he did good, Honorius. He just, he had the spirit. I will defend him forever as being an actually good pope. How could we not? He did such a good job. I actually was just re-looking at my notes about him yesterday because someone asked me questions about aqueducts. And Honorius repaired the aqueducts. Let's not forget. Important. <laughs> also, hello, Marco. That was your question. After the confirmation of the council, Pope Leo turned his attention to an area that had been troublesome in the hopes that he could create a great unity across the churches of the West. And normally, this is where I would ask you if you had remembered where there had been conflict in the West, but it's been two months and you've been super busy and I'm not an asshole, so I'm just going to tell you that it's Ravenna. Although the brief autocephalous period of the Bishopric of Ravenna had ended back in Donus's episode, which is episode 80, this had not stopped the area from being contentious, and it didn't quite put to bed the threat that a hostile archbishop or a haughty exarch might try to make that area autocephalous again. And so Leo had secured a confirmation from Emperor Constantine that the edict that had been issued by his father, the one that originally allowed Morris, the Archbishop of Ravenna, to be autocephalous, was revoked from law. So he got that all confirmed out that it is no longer in any law books. Leo also confirmed the traditional custom that any bishop elect for Ravenna had to come to Rome to be consecrated to their position by the Pope, which... 
very much secures not autocephalous, definitely subject to the apostolic see. But in a gesture of conciliation and goodwill, he reduced the minimum time that they had to stay in Rome for the consecration and allowed for the bishop to send an annual delegate to Rome rather than the traditional stance of requiring the bishop to come once a year to pay homage to the Pope. Kind of a pain in the butt if you have to do it every year as the actual bishop. He can just now send someone to do that. Travel isn't that easy. Yeah, and Ravenna's not, like, supremely, supremely far away, but we are talking about a good stretch of Italy. Right. It's not like going to Constantinople, but it is a good distance. It's not like you can get in your car and drive for, like, three hours. Definitely not. So he he just decides, look, you can send a delegate to me. This is how they kind of keep up with making sure that everything is being proper in all of the theology and the clerical discipline in Ravenna, but now... He's making it easier for them. He also abolished a long-standing tax that had been traditionally paid when the archbishops of Ravenna received a pallium, which, of course, marks them with distinction within the church, but it's, it's not far off from the pope paying the emperor a consecration tax. So he gets rid of it, and that's a nice incentive to keep things in line and mutually beneficial. And now... As has become particularly standard in the Liber Pontificalis lately, we have a potentially ominous astronomical event. In his time, on 16th day of April in the 11th indiction, 683, the moon underwent an eclipse after the Maundy Thursday Mass of the Lord's Supper. Nearly all night it labored with a bloody countenance, and only after cockcrow did it slowly begin to clear and return to normal. And through the historical astronomical charts that I have been using lately, we know that this is a lunar eclipse, which lasted in total eclipse for 328 minutes. So we're talking a total eclipse of five and a half hours. Ooh, I don't, I don't think we've had one of those for that long, basically, ever. Not in a long time. It's gone and... 30 seconds, it's over. Yeah, this one lasted for five and a half hours, so they had a bloody moon for five and a half hours. Now, this one doesn't seem to have any particular omen attached to it that was significant to society at large, but maybe it was an omen for Leo, because he died shortly after. Pope Leo died on June 28th of 683, which would have made him about 72, if we accept 611 as his birth year. He was buried on July 3rd in Old St. Peter's, and it might have been destroyed in New St. Peter's, but in the early 12th century, Pope Pascal II had his remains removed and interned with his successive Pope Leos, so Pope Leo III and IV, in a new marble tomb at the altar of the Chapel of the Madonna della Colonna, which was remade in New St. Peter's by Pope Gregory the Thirteenth in 1580. So he gets moved and therefore spared being destroyed, but even though the new tomb he's moved from was destroyed, it also gets remade. We get a description of the tomb in Wendy J. Reardon's book, The Deaths of the Popes. The ornate sarcophagus housing the Leos features Christ giving the scroll of the law to St. Peter, who is carrying a cross. On the other side of the Lord is Elias, dropping his mantle for his disciple. And I have a picture for you of a tomb. Show me a tomb. 
It is this one. That's Pope oh. Leo 2, 3, and 4. All of them? All of them. They all get moved and they get to hang out together. They don't hang out with Pope Leo the Great. He gets his own big thing, but they get this one. They just get their second fiddle. But it's still pretty fabulous, considering that most of our popes lately don't have a tomb at all. <laughs> they initially thought that his bones had gone to Ferrera, because there is an altar dedicated to a Leo II in Ferrera. But they actually found his bones in the Vatican and verified them as his bones in the Vatican. So it was determined that the Farinese Leo II altar was a bishop, which turned out to be Bishop Leo II of Voginza, not the Pope. A little bit of extra confusion to top things off. So that is Pope Leo II, and now we must rate him. Because I don't think he's going to stand up to be quite as impactful as Leo I. He tried, though. Papatum infallium. He is the pope who confirms the canons of the ecumenical council. So we would say, generally, this is a really, really good thing. This is definitely a mark in history kind of thing. However, we might also consider it bad because he's the one who's excommunicating Pope Honorius. And he also reestablishes quite a, a much stronger hold on Ravenna. So these are two things that he has done that are good, mostly. If you want to knock off a couple points for, for Honorius, you can do that. I do want to knock off at least one point. He did pretty good. I'm going to give him a four. That's what I was thinking as well, because the canons, they're, they're quite a big deal. This is quite a big council because we're dealing with quite a big religious conflict. He didn't do any of the work because that was all Pope Agatho, but he is the one who will go down in history as confirming those. And the Ravenna thing, I think it's worthy of a four. So he will get an eight in Papatum and Phallium. Fructus Prohibitum. I have nothing for you, unless you would like to give him a point for excommunicating Pope Honorius. He can have a little point as a treat. Seculari impactum. He maintains a strong enough relationship with the emperor to be able to negotiate for the reduction or the abolition of the clerical tax, which is one more modicum of independence from imperial holds on the papacy. So it is something. Yeah, like, work in that direction is probably worth maybe a one. It's definitely worth a one, so we will both give him a one. And he will get a two in Seculari Impactum. Fossium Sanctus. Are you ready to look at a Pope Man? It's been a long time. I haven't looked at a Pope Man in so long. No, wait, I looked at some on Saturday. You did. At the intelligence speech, we did have you look at two Pope Men. But... By the time we get to them, you will have forgotten them, because it's a long ways away. Oh. Mm. He's got a very stern face. He does have a- it's a very severe and, and I think somewhat striking face when you think about it. He, he's very sharp, very aquiline. There's a lot happening in just this little image. He's a very grumpy looking, like, Stanley Tucci sort of figure. He does look a little bit like Stanley Tucci. But Stanley Tucci usually has a much more pleasant expression on his face. Also, his beard is so sharp, it's almost like it's one 
big, solid entity, and I feel like he could paunch somebody with it. If he just turned his head too fast, he could slap you with that beard. Like a plank of wood. Absolutely. I mean, I like it. What do you think it's worth? Look, I'll give him like a six. That is exactly what I was thinking. I would give him a six, so he will get a 12 in that category, which when divided by four gives him a three in total. But there are more images of him. He gets some strange ones here. So these ones are just general depictions. So we have this one, which looks nothing. Oh, it's a Jafif. Have a Jafif. No, it's still got a really severe profile there, but this one looks like, you know, when they depict, like, Irish bullies. Yep, yep. It definitely looks like he's stumbled out of a bar and he's ready to fight with somebody. Yep, there is definitely that aspect to it. He looks like he's really kind of cheesed off about being told to pray. He's like, yeah, whatever. He came out of the bar to fight someone and they're like, it's time to pray. And he's very displeased about this. And this is this is actually the one from our artist who doesn't get any better because it's got the same style. He's been getting slightly better. Yeah, this is definitely a marked improvement. And then we also have this one, which, I mean, the expression is still there, but this time he's like, and it looks like he's sitting in front of a laptop and someone... I was gonna say he's doing like a Stevie Wonder where he's like singing really loud. I mean, he could be. He could be because he's singing. It does look a little piano-ish. But to me, considering how grumpy he looks, it's like someone just sent him a meme he's seen like 50,000 times already. And he's just like, ah, why do people keep sending me this? Like when we first told everyone we were doing Pope things and they were like, here's the same meme over and over again. Exactly. It's exactly like that. Or, you know, it's it's a meme about somebody who has a, a, a super resting face and he's like, I know, okay? A fighting Irish meme. I know I look like an Irish bully. Tempest Pontificus. August 17th, 682 to June 28th of 683 gives him a total of 11 months and a score of 0.25 which would have been two years if he had been consecrated immediately. But he was not. All right, everybody, it's the canon bonus round! Do, 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 do. Yes! He is a saint! Is he a saint because his name is Leo? I mean, yeah, probably. His traditional feast day, of course, was June 28th, first commemorated in the Roman Martyrology, but it has now been moved to July 3rd. And I read that he's often depicted with music or with the poor, but I found no examples of this when I was looking for Facium Sanctus. He's playing a piano. Well, yes, he's potentially playing a piano, but I don't think it's an actual piano because, like, that wasn't really a thing. I mean, it could be a piano, but it looks like he's writing at a desk. Pipe organs exist. I mean, they do in that regard, but... But he also doesn't have a patron sainthood, so we get to make him a patron saint of something. It's either gonna be Irish Bullies or the song Piano Man. <laughs> I think it has to be Irish Bullies. I was thinking, like, maybe meme exhaustion, but I think it has to be. <laughs> he would become such a popular saint if we made him the patron saint of meme exhaustion. 
It's true. So which way do you want to go? Do you want to make him a patron saint of Irish bullies? Or the meme exhaustion thing? And I really boost his saint cred. It could be both. Irish bully meme exhaustion? That's really niche. <laughs> All right, we'll make him the patron saint of Irish bullies and meme exhaustion. Notre Dame, you've got a new patron saint. Well, they do. And, and they'd probably be very happy about it. And that brings us to his total score, which is a 15.25. So... Like, that's not awful. That's not bad. It puts him in, in, in decidedly in the middle camp. He is in 53rd place at current, so it's all right. It's doable. So now I must ask you if he is papally enough and pizzazzy enough and have an impact enough for a papal bull. No. No, he doesn't. He's not doing it. But you know what? He did try to do some good things. He tried his best. He is a good trier. He's real cranky about it, but that that's just the way the cookie crumbles. This is not the end of our show because, oh boy, we have so many thank yous to make. <laughs> I thought maybe we had a Pope watch. Oh, you know, okay, so this is another thing that I thought about addressing in this show because there have been a lot of Pope slash pandemic slash quarantine things that have happened. And then there's, you know, a whole bunch of things that are going on with that. So, you know, at some point, we're going to have to do a summary. But for now, um, we're, we're just going to leave it because I think we really need to shine on these thank yous because they are super, super important to us. They're piling up. Because, wow, you guys... You're amazing, and you have been amazing to us during this pandemic. So, first off, we have patrons to absolve of their temporal sins. So we will now thank and absolve Craig T. Nelson, Patrick Brimwill, Vicki Newton, Chris Sylvia, Ashley Fisher, Christopher Peters, Sam Lockyer, Bill Simony, Phoebe, Nicholas Harold, and Greg, who has also started a Pope podcast called Popular History. Yeah, didn't his first episode come out? Yesterday. Check it out. It's not going to be as chronological as, as we are, so it will be more poppy and jumping around. Ego te absolvo. We also need to thank the Presidencies podcast for having us do a quote for his episode. He's also been super, super supportive and, and tweeting about us a lot. Age of Victoria, the Ancient and Esoteric Order of the Jackalope, for all generally just being lovely about us on social media. We need to thank Grim Reading, who had us on their podcast talking about the three languages story, which was really, really cool and exciting because they are a Rexipod and oh my gosh, it was really, really, really exciting to be able to look into some popey things for them. I want to thank Sebastian Major of Our Fake History, who also had me on for an interview. Very, very exciting. What a great show. It is only going to be available for his Patreon audience, but we had a fantastic conversation. So that is awesome. We also need to thank Your Brain on Facts for having me. We talked about Pope Celestine V in her episode on hermits. And then... She was on ours. Yes, she was on ours. She will be on our June Patreon episode spectacular where we talked about 
lady saints of the medieval period who did lots of gross things. We need to thank Ruker K for sending us an absolute metric ton of information and so many sources and so many nice compliments. He actually said that he was sending his students to listen to us and I cannot think of higher praise. Oh my goodness. And he has been helping me so much through getting through the whole Frankish papacy start period, which is what I'm researching right now. And we need to thank Patrick Brumwill, who gave us further information and has been sending me wonderful emails about the ancient church period, lots of conversations about monasticism, which is definitely going to fund some bonus episodes in the future. I'm looking forward to that. Huge thanks, of course, to all of the people who are involved in our anniversary special. So the boys from Totalis Rankium, Josh from Drug History, Ari from Quest Friends, David from the Siecla podcast, Courtney from Cult of Domesticity. You guys made it awesome. And we love all of you. And of course, because it's been so long, it's time for us to say thank you to all of you as well. Yes, every one of you. Oh, and I had a thank you because someone on Tumblr, I'm pretty sure they interact with us on Twitter. Their name is Bree, with an E. Ah! And uh, they definitely put up a whole post about Podcast Racks and recommended us on that. On Tumblr, which is not a place that normally I see us recommended. Oh, that's awesome. And I do know, yeah, she does interact with us on Twitter sometimes. So thank you, Brie. That's awesome, too. And of course, and you will hear us, we're going to do this one probably again next week because it is still huge, fresh in our minds. Thank you to everybody who came to Intelligent Speech, who got us involved with Intelligent Speech, who admined at Intelligent Speech. All of you are phenomenal people, and we had the best time. So thank you so very, very much. And I think that is a fabulous note to end on. So we could say thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye.